everyone, and welcome to another episode of Between Two Studs. I'm Alex Studd. And I'm Ron Studd. Ron, episode 24, we're closing out the first season of our show. There were two away after this. I, I think that's really interesting how far our show has gone to think we've made it every single week putting out a new episode. And we started this officially, right? We've still got our ghost episode, our unofficial episode that came out, what was it, sometime in November? Sometime that'll get released as a special B-Sides track or something. Half a year. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it is. And actually, I think what's great about tonight's guest is, if you recall, Ron, the origin of, of our show that we started mm -hmm. was en route to what city? Where were we ultimately going? Where was our destination? We were going to San Diego. Right, right. And today... Guess where our guest is from? He's from San Diego. That's exactly right. So who better to have on than tonight, Mr. Andrew Weatherall? How are you doing tonight? Doing well, doing well. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, we're excited to have you on. You have been one of our one of our wonderful listeners, provided some feedback. We're trying to incorporate some of those things in, and we'll certainly be using it for, for season two as well. But we appreciate that you're on the show tonight. And you know how this works. We go right into the Ember round. Are you ready? Let's, uh, let's do it. All right. So let's dive right into this. Andrew, how do you know us? Uh, Alex, you and I used to work together. I, I work at a company, uh, Dialogue Tech. One day, a jolly figure walked in the door and started talking and didn't stop until the day that he left. That was Mr. Alex Studd. And uh, Alex, you and I worked pretty closely together. I'm on the product team. You were on the product marketing team. So uh, we got to know each other through the weekly meetings that we set up. Uh, every week, Alex and I would meet in the lounge area with some coffee. You were the only one, like every other. So I, I met with all the product <laughs> managers every week and all the others were in like official offices, right? Like we'd meet in a room. Andrew and I would just meet on the couch. Yeah. <laughs> and we would just hang out and drink coffee. It's usually right after lunch. I was a little sleepy. But and we, I would say we talked about work 25% of the time, and the other 75 was just hanging out, getting, getting ready to get back to work from post-lunch. So because so much just kind of BS talk between us, we became good friends, and here we are. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. What are some of your areas of interest? So as Alex mentioned, uh, originally from San Diego, California, grew up there on the beach, miss it greatly because now I live in Chicago. Been in Chicago since 2007. And don't get me wrong, Chicago is an amazing city. It's just not 72 degrees and sunny every day with a beach to go play in. What do I like? Uh, travel. I like food. I got a, a family now, uh, a wife and two beautiful daughters uh, aged four and 11 months. So that's pretty much all I do is things with the family at this point. We can't leave them alone. We can't be away from them longer than two to three minutes. Otherwise, something's going to get broken or put in someone's mouth. And yeah, that's my life right now. But there's a lot of things that are happening. Speaking so. of not having much time and flexibility yeah. to do things, there's one thing you can always do, which is drink. <laughs> True. Once they go to bed. Exactly. So we always, you know, this question, what are you currently drinking? But actually, before you even answer that, you're on the show, Chicago, even though you, you are a San Diegan. What, is that what they say? San Diego. San Diegan. Even though you are a San Diegan, 
you are also kind of a Chicago. I mean, since 2007, that's a long time. Yeah. So, so Ron and I, in honor of you, and I think we've done this for every every guest who is from Chicago or lives in Chicago, we will do a shot of Malort in your honor. So cheers to you. Thank you. I I was going to go to the liquor store next door to my house and get a Chicago handshake before this, but I'm also trying to drink all the alcohol I have in my house, and I figured adding more was unnecessary at this point. So hmm. Understood. Well, so that leads us to... What are you drinking? I am drinking, uh, if you can see it, it's, you know, a little bit brown on some mm -hmm. ice, but it's not whiskey. This is actually Few. Um, I think, Alex, oh, you've mentioned yeah. Few before. This is a barrel-aged gin. You know, I've so, seen that, and I've been a little afraid to get it because I'm not much of a gin guy. What do you think? Oh, I love it. It's, I mean, I'm not a huge gin guy. I enjoy gin. But you you definitely get some of the caramels, some of the the sweetness that you would find in like a whiskey that's been barrel aged uh, in a charred barrel. But then with the juniper from the gin and everything, it's it's really a delight. So um, I highly recommend it. A buddy of mine was actually gifted an entire barrel's worth, like a what? small a, a mini barrel, not a giant okay. barrel, but it was enough to be like fifteen bottles or something. So he gave wow. me one of those bottles, and uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed it. So I recommend it. So gin is really very aromatic on its own. You top that off with some barrel aging. I would imagine it's probably doing a lot of really cool things on the flavor, but it's also probably doing some really cool stuff on the aroma too. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's hard to explain because it is still gin, right? You drink it and you're like, okay, this is gin. It's um, Christmas time. <laughs> I always but, say I love I love gin, but it tastes like Christmas trees. That's what I've always thought. The juniper. Okay. Yeah. 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 I get you. I don't I don't make that same connection, but there I, I did go to a restaurant once that served a little sprig of pine with their mm. gin and tonic. So, mm. but no, it's 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 a fantastic liquor. So I, I recommend it next time you're in the store, Alex. Ron, if I, if they sell few down by you, I, I don't know if they do, but uh, you know what? I've gotten it through Flaviar before. You know, if I had to guess, I would say they probably sell a few. Yeah. <laughs> Ron, what are you drinking right now? I'm having some Redemption High Rye Bourbon. This is Single Barrel Select, and I found this at my local liquor store. I got to say, I mean, this is from Indiana, but the thing that first kind of threw me off when I kind of sipped it is it almost kind of gave me like a punch of like maple syrup uh, right on the front. And that flavor kind of quickly faded. It was not like something that stuck around, but it just kind of really threw me off. And it was like very, very sweet, which for something that high of proof, I was not expecting it to be so sweet, but really tastes very nice, very pleasant and perfect for tonight. So what are you drinking, Alex? Well, I kind of changed things up. I am drinking a Japanese rice whiskey tonight, Fukano. Ooh. And it has like, I'll be honest with you, I was tasting it and very much enjoying it. Uh, and it was very flavorful. And then I had the shot of Malort. Uh, and, I, <laughs> and I love Malort. But once you go from a shot of Malort to drinking anything else, all of a sudden the taste is diminished significantly. But it was very, very nice. It kind of had a very like uh, kind of sweet, fruity aroma and flavor, which I, I really liked. I, I actually, I would say I've only started getting into Japanese whiskeys probably in the last six months to a year. And in fact, Ron, what was the one we had on that trip that we mentioned earlier on the trip from El Paso so was, to San Diego? That was Toki. And that was fantastic. Yeah. I was actually really impressed with that Toki because of how cheap it was. The 
side story on that, and we'll quickly move on from there. I didn't realize Walgreens, at least in the Southwest, can serve liquor. So it was kind of like split where it's like, it's yep, medicinal, it Ron, you pick up your prescriptions and you get a bottle of booze. It makes, I could see that. So yeah, you went to the one side of the store and it was complete liquor store and the other side, just normal drug store. I had never seen that. Like I, you know, in the Southeast we have like grocery stores that sell liquor, which is cool, but I'd never seen that with a drug store. So very cool. So opposite story. I moved away from the West coast and suddenly I was like, wait a second, I can't buy everything at the same place, wherever I am, I have to like go somewhere specific. This is yeah. annoying. But it, you know what? The Midwest is certainly better than the Northeast. I, I don't yes. know if we've talked about it on this show, but you know, when I lived in, I went to actually Ron and I both went to college in Pennsylvania and it's like, you have to go to a specific beer distributor Yep. And at the beer distributor, you can only get beer. You got to go to a specialty state-run liquor store to get liquor, right? It's 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 absurd. There's no yeah. one-stop shopping in the state of Pennsylvania. And my, my most hated thing about that was depending on which type of store you went to, I forget which one's which, but it was like some of them, you had to buy a whole case of it. You can't yes. just buy like a 12-pack. <laughs> no, yes, that's, that's right. You have to buy like practically a pallet of beer. Yeah. And it's like, cool. So, and, and you would kind of forget that you're like, Oh, I just want a 12 pack. And they're like, no, you have to buy. And you're like, Oh, geez, these laws here. They're so goofy. But as, as, as a young college student, that was probably annoying to fork over that much, but retrospectively, it's probably a great problem to have. Yeah. I think that was my problem specifically. I know we're, I think later in this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about beer, but my issue was I always tried to get my dog fish head. And getting like a whole case of dogfish head was always fairly pricey. Yeah. Which was yeah kind of especially up as a college kid. Like, right. Right. Yeah. That must have been hard. See, for me, you know, I did go to college in Pennsylvania, but I was 12 miles away from the Delaware state border. So you hopped over there where laws were a little bit more sane and, uh, you know, not 300 year old blue laws. That's yeah. how it worked. So anyway, fun, fun little. It is kind of interesting, though, as you get further south and west, they get much more relaxed on, on booze. And I assume by the time you're in San Diego, as long as you can sit at the table, I assume you can drink tequila, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So so, you know, this question, Andrew, we've gotten a lot of great responses. Pick a piece of art, something that reflects or speaks to you and tell us about it. Sure. And I'm going to shout out to Hannah on this one for kind of breaking the mold of finding mm. a specific thing. Because I had been thinking about it for a long time and I could never really place what represents me. But because she broke down that barrier, I'm going to go with uh, Anthony Bourdain's No Reservation series. Um, and And not because I like traveling and I like food and I do like those things, but uh, I think it goes a little deeper than that. The places, so Anthony Bourdain used to visit places and would show them off without like fetishizing it and really got to know the people in the culture there and understands what food means to them and what it means to the culture. And because of that, you know, I, I, that's influenced me over the years. And uh, in ways like when I travel now, I always try to stay at an Airbnb, for mm -hmm. example, because... You can do that in a neighborhood. When you walk out your front door, you're not walking into a lobby of a hotel. You're not passing tourist places. You're walking onto the street with other people that live there. And it just immediately changes the experience that you have with that city. So um, I think that's kind of helped shape what I look for when I travel. 
mm. um, what I try to stay away from, right? Because touristy things can be fun, but as long as you understand that that's what they are and also step away from that, like it's it's a totally different experience. So I'm going to go with uh, Anthony Bourdain's No Reservation series. I like that response a lot because what it tells me is, as opposed to just saying, I, I admire this or admire that, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what you're saying is, and correct me if I'm wrong, that Anthony Bourdain through that series almost left you a trail of breadcrumbs to say, this is how you can travel and really explore the excitement of strange and unusual places without, hey, you're going to stay at the Four Seasons or the Double Tree, right? Like really taking it in and enjoying these these areas for what they are. Yes, that. And it also kind of, he, he really tried to focus on like the importance of the uh, food that they make locally to the culture um, and, and understanding that connection, right? So whenever I travel now, um, I also try to find like food festival type events that are geared more towards the local community, not the tourists coming in, because then you're actually getting in there with the community, you're eating with the community, you're talking to people who are excited to see someone not from there there, you know. Example, when I was in Peru, we stumbled uh, onto a street festival where they just had like all the little grills out and street vendors cooking cow heart, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was fantastic. You know, it was, it was one of the most memorable parts of that trip. It's, it's, it's that type of thing that I look for. And I, I definitely owe a, a good amount of that to Anthony Bourdain. I think one of the things I love, too, about your answer and just about that show was also how... Anthony Bourdain would always bring a lot of really good humor. He would bring mm-hmm. in some philosophy, which he sprinkled in 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 really kind of subtle way. And I think I loved the point too about how he wasn't going for this is the super well known. He was going out finding that organically, and I think that that kind of also makes it, it so much more approachable for anybody yeah. who's traveling to see. Oh hey, I can go to that street market, get something amazing, and you can enjoy it for what it is. Not try to find the Michelin star restaurant that is going to have, you know, you're going to have a great time for sure. Right. But it's not the same authentic experience. Well, and and I have to say, I was a big fan of, of Anthony Bourdain for that exact reason, right? Like I, I read his, his first book, Kitchen Confidential. Yeah. And he is a professionally trained chef. He went to the Culinary Institute of America and certainly had a, had a palate and an ability to appreciate the best food that food has to offer. He could go have a $10,000 dinner and appreciate it for what it was. But as a viewer of the show, well, that's always going to be out of my price range. So I always appreciated that he would, he would kind of say, yeah, where I'm going to be going, you can get a great meal for $3, right? And I'm going to mm-hmm. show you. I, I, you know, it's funny, even in the States, I remember there was a hilarious episode where he was in Atlanta and he went to Waffle House for the first time and he got to experience Waffle House. <laughs> and it was just really funny, like this professional chef who was a career artist. I, I, I consider chefs to be artists, right, in their own right, for 30 whatever years is sitting down and enjoying and appreciating Waffle House for what it is. Yeah, which is great. That's what Waffle House is, but yes. Awesome, awesome answer. Loved it. And now we've got something really, really special. I know we kind of talked about it to be at the beginning of the episode, 
And Alex had talked to you about this and just the amount of feedback that you've given us has really helped us to say, we have to make our Ember round just a little bit better. We're going to take it up just a skosh and you're going to be the first person to do it. Not only are you the first person to do it, but we're going to always remember you as the person who helped improve it and take it to that next level. And so without further ado, here is your question. How has COVID impacted your life? What a fantastic question, Ron, and thank you for right? that. Yeah, so this is a question that I, I sent Alex because a few of your previous guests had kind of gotten onto topics about this and how COVID has affected them, and I th found that so interesting. And it's actually done a lot to my life as well. You know, during COVID, my second daughter was born, and, and we took the precautions very, very seriously. So we spent a long time not going out to public parks and playing in the playgrounds, trying to stay away from people. And it really took a toll, right? Changed everything about how we interact with friends, how we interact with our, our immediate family, or I guess extended family that lives nearby. We made some people mad by not seeing them. Beyond that, COVID delayed my dreams of becoming an EU citizen, right? So I'm in the process of getting my EU citizenship. And the next step is for me to go to Europe and submit my paperwork to Luxembourg, showing that I have ancestry coming from there. And then I can get my passport eventually. But I had a big trip planned with my family to go travel through Europe and that got delayed. So that's been pretty annoying. But it, it did, COVID has helped me understand what the cost of waiting is, right? That's, that's mm -hmm. the biggest takeaway for me. What's the cost of waiting for the right moment? What's the cost of, of waiting to, to further analyze something before jumping into it? Because we've been forced to wait to do a lot of things. I've actually really analyzed my life, try to figure out what brings joy to my world, if you will, what brings joy to my family. And we are currently, we've decided to leave Chicago. And this is, there's, there's still some people you know, pieces in play here, but in August, I will be moving with my family to Costa Rica. This is where... hot off the press, just so everyone's wow. aware. I have not heard this offline until just this moment. Yes. Wow. Yes. We've, we, we traveled there about a month ago. We found a small little town on the Pacific coast, town of Samara, looked at some schools, found a house, put a, got a lease on the house. Um, so right now we're looking at about a year. Uh, who knows what that's going to be if we decide to stay, if we decide to eventually get European citizenship, move to Europe, I don't know, move back. Yeah, COVID has really helped me put into perspective, like, what does it mean to be here in Chicago with my family when I like to be outside, when I like to be hiking, I like to be in nature, I like to be swimming in the ocean and all these things. And not even having a chance to travel and do that is really just kind of told me to say, stop waiting for the right moment. Stop waiting. You know, why, why not now? That's really been the question that I've had to deal with. It's, and I haven't had a good reason why not now. So we're doing it. Wow. There you go. I don't even know what it, I don't even know how to respond to that. That's, <laughs> that's incredible. And I, yeah. and I, and I love that response. I think, you know, every one of us has had to reflect and make adjustments. When you sent me, Hey, you should ask this question to your guests. You, you said, you and your brother started a podcast during COVID. Like that's that's a that's something that would have never happened. You didn't say this, but it's true. This would have never happened had had COVID not happened. So I think there is 
a moment to, especially now that you know I'm crossing my fingers that we're making our way out of this, to take a step back and and recognize this was a horrible thing and we're not trying to mitigate it by any means, but where are the nuggets of positivity that we can take from this? And I, and I think your response is, is a perfect example of that. To say what I said a different way also, it's the routine that we become in, in society, right? Waking up, going to work, taking the kids here, doing that. It's great, but it also can get tiring. Mm -hmm. And I think I had just become accepting of the routine because you get to go travel and you get to go do this and you get to go do that. And I wasn't really challenging myself. So this is, this is going to be that challenge. Well, I think we're going to shift a little bit and we're going to go into the career questions, but we have to give you props for that great question. So thank you for improving the Ember round. I think that that was a great addition. We will be asking all of our guests with that going forward. So thank you very much for that addition. Absolutely. Excited to hear what other people say. You work not only with a previous guest, Lori Ike, but in a similar role too. Tell us in your own words, what is a product manager all about? Not only did I work with Lori Ike, I actually know her very well. I've known her since high school. So if you're listening, Lori, hey, hope Okaboji's fun. <laughs> now, what what is a product manager? What is product management all about? It's it's really there's a, there's a few primary roles, but the core of it is that as a product manager, you're responsible for the success of the products that you manage, right? So part of that is understanding the customer, um, identifying what their problems are, not necessarily problems with your products, but like the problems that they are trying to solve for their business, and then understanding how your tools that you're selling, your software that you're selling can help them solve that problem, help make their job easier. And then understanding where it's not, right? Um, and when you understand where your, pro where your product isn't solving those problems, that's where it's like, okay, how can we make our product better? The other side of that is translating those customer requirements, customer needs into actual stories. We, we, we call them stories in the, in the tech world, but what does the tech team need to know to execute on that vision that you have of this product that's going to help the customer? Once you have all of that, there's the prioritization of you know all the different needs, um, monitoring in market products so that you're measuring success and driving growth for the company. So it, it's it's a whole bunch of things. Some people call it that you're like the the CEO of your product, which I don't like that term because. You're not a CEO because you can't force anyone to do anything. You actually don't <laughs> manage anybody. You're just like working with all these people. But uh, another way, you know, you're you're the herder. Sometimes you're herding sheep and it's easy. Sometimes you're herding cats and you're chasing things everywhere. I just make sure that the people smarter than me that are doing the work are doing the most impactful things so that the customer will gain value as quickly as possible. You know, when I worked with you, Andrew, one of the things I really appreciated about you is for the products that you managed, you knew exactly how they work, how customers are using it. And I remember you and I, probably you begrudgingly, but you did it. You would sit down for hours with me, whiteboarding out specific use cases. And you'd say, yes, actually X and Y customer do this, but Z customer actually does it a little bit differently. They do it this way because you have that relationship with the customers. You're trying to learn 
What are their challenges? How can we improve on them? And I think that takes a lot of work to have all those perspectives and then bring it all together. And I think there was, there was another time, Alex, that I remember where you, you came to me and you're like, the sales team thinks that they need more training on this product. And I looked at you and I said, no, they don't. You yeah. trained them on that nine months ago. Them knowing how it works isn't going to help them sell it. Well, right? and, that's, and that's obviously not to bore the audience, but that's, that's where I come into play as a product marketer, right. where I'm taking what you're building and your team is building and saying, how do we take this to market? Because the, the what isn't necessarily always that important, especially if our customers aren't overly technical. They want to understand how and what's the value of said product. And for salespeople, they want to understand how do I position this? How does this compare to the competition's offerings? Right. Yeah. So that's that's from our little world. That's how we all kind of plug in together. And that's that's how <laughs> that's how Andrew and I would work well together. So and, and that's how I worked with Lori as well. Cool. Well, so kind of switching gears a little bit, getting a little bit more into your role at Dialogue Tech, because I think it's really interesting. I think it's a space that everyone has interacted with, but no one has ever really thought about it, in my opinion, unless you're in that world, which is, you know, as a consumer, we're, we're constantly being bombarded with advertisements each and every day. And in fact, we talk about this on an episode with Dan Hellerman, but can you quickly touch on what marketing attribution is and why it's so important for businesses? Great question. So marketing attribution, we're really trying to attribute or, or you know, assign the buyer to what drove them to make that purchase. How did they find me? How did they get here? So if, if we think about like online attribution, can be like what drove a customer to my website? What did they click on? Was it an organic search that they did in Google? Was it a PPC ad, you know, an, an ad that a marketer uh, is paying for for the click but at dt specifically we focus on phone calls so we take all that online data and we match that to the phone call that's made so traditionally if a person was looking at something online and they called the picked up the phone all of that data was lost so we're able to tie that together and say created this ad on google this person clicked on it they navigated through your website they got to you know the page on product x picked up the phone made the phone call so we are attributing all of that that user path to that phone call. Does that make sense? Yes, and I, I think it, it's really cool because in a real world example, let's just say you're in the market for, let's just say refrigerators mm -hmm. and you Google refrigerators in Chicago. Well, people are bidding on those keywords, right? Because yeah. clearly you're in the market for a refrigerator. And I just think it's so cool that like you click on a link and you go on a website and you place a phone call if they're using software like the software you and your company are developing, you could theoretically know on the other end, not only did they use that Google search and end up on your website, but when they place a phone call, the call center, which is answering the phone call, would know all that information. So they would already know that you're interested in refrigerators. And yes. then if they ended up making a purchase, they'd be able to tie that back to the original paid search. So you may have said, well, we spent $5 on that click. Essentially, when anytime someone clicks on an advertisement, they owe Google money, whether you end up making a transaction or not, right? So, oh, I'm a business that just spent $5 on this click that a customer clicked on, but guess what? They just bought a $3,000 refrigerator. 
guess what? That's a pretty good uh, return on investment, as they say. That's right. And, and it's very well said, Alex. I mean, it comes down to data, right? We're starting to live and breathe by data in this world. And we're just helping marketers spend their money smartly and effectively by allowing them to quantify the impact that they are having with their marketing dollars on the business. Silly question on that. Sure. In terms of like what's going on behind the scenes, is that are you using like a dynamically generated phone number or are you basically looking at saying, hey, X persons have this website open to this page. Ergo, I know that anybody who's calling in, there's probably a relatively high correlation that the people that are have the page open are the only ones that are seeing this phone number. Therefore, I can tie it there. Or am I giving away secrets? No, no, there's no secrets here. It's the former. We okay. have a, a dynamically generated phone number that gets uh, put onto the page. Uh, it overlays existing numbers. Mm -hmm. um, so if our system goes down, you're still going to have other numbers up there. But yeah, every single user that goes to that website will get a different number presented to them so that we can track the individual users and the phone calls that they make. Cool. When I worked at Dialogue Tech with Andrew, one of the things I always did with new hires to freak them out, but in a good way, because it, it, it didn't always click for them, is I'd say, okay, let's go on a Google search and we'd go on a known customer's website. Mm -hmm. And it would say, yep, this is the phone number to call their whatever, their hotline. And then I'd say, let's now in incognito mode, go on the exact same web page, just copy and paste it from the other browser. It's a completely different phone number. But you wouldn't know that, right? Person A and person B wouldn't know, but that is exactly how software that tracks marketing attribution is able to say, this came from this source and we can quantify exactly the value of what ended up happening on the phone call. Did a transaction happen or did it not happen? And when you're categorizing that over hundreds or thousands of phone calls, you can really determine what campaigns are most successful and which ones aren't. Mm kind of on the same topic, and this is the last question before we kind of switch gears, but I think it's relevant to talk about. I remember, Andrew, when I first started working with you, and again, we did these whiteboarding sessions. One of the things you said to me is you said, Alex, think of your cell phone number as the new social security number. And I was kind of puzzled by that. And then you kind of broke it down a little bit. And for one, you keep your cell phone number, you're probably going to keep it the rest of your life now, right? It's not like the way it used to be. But can you can you dive into that a little bit more, how businesses are able to use information that is public knowledge based on your cell phone number to make decisions about you from a marketing standpoint? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I made that realization after my grandmother passed. My family, you know, we got together, we had the memorial, and my dad was talking about how her number, and this was a landline, right? This wasn't even a cell phone number. This was a landline. It had been at the house for since he was in college. Then she went into, you know, a, a elderly home because she needed more assistance, and they transferred the phone number there. And now that she was gone, that number was going to go away. And uh, there's no reason for us to keep it. No one's calling, you know, us on that number. So. My dad actually got choked up by that. You know, this this was like an emotional thing for him to lose his mom's phone number because we had this memorial, you know, months after she had passed. And I was like, wow, I've I've never really thought of it as something that is connected to a person and kind of lives and dies with them. So that's where I was like, okay, and now now I 
talk about you know the phone number being the social. That's the backstory. That's how I got to that realization. But how it's used today is pretty interesting. So your phone is connected to you, and people are constantly gathering data on you. Right? There's databases online that you can search phone numbers and you can get a plethora of information about name, address, previous addresses, people that you're related to, what their addresses are, you know, how old are you, what's your general income level, are you living in an apartment or a house, and it, all it's this information. It's incredible. And I didn't believe right? Andrew when he first told me this. And he's like, well, let's do it, Alex. And I gave him my phone number and he's like, well, who's Kate Hunt? And I was like, well, that's my sister. And he's like, Oh, what's Bear Delaware? And I said, oh, I used to live there. All this information can easily be searched and found based on my phone number. Right. It's all public information too, right? This isn't people doing things maliciously. This is, this is public information that companies gather and kind of create these profiles. So despite just having you, you thinking it's as my phone, my number, there's a profile created around the type of person that you are, right? Now, the way marketers can use this is that they'll say, okay, Ron went out and Ron purchased a new computer. And we know that Ron is this old, Ron lives in this area, Ron, and, and they, they kind of paint this picture and they say, okay, let's look at everyone else that we have in our database that's purchased recently. And they're like, wow, we've got a whole bunch of people that look similar to Ron, the same age, they're all male, they're all, you know, here's the similarities. And they say, okay, let's create a lookalike campaign what they call them, where we target that type of person through Facebook, through Instagram, through other mediums, and we serve ads to that because we know that this is a higher demographic to purchase. It's very successful. I mean, how, many, how often are you on Instagram and you're like, uh, okay, that's actually a, a pretty cool product. I, I would consider buying that, right? Right, like, right. It, it, you're like, shoot, I don't, I don't want marketing to work like this, but I think that's really cool and I kind of want it. That's exactly how they do it. And it's, it's, it's a numbers game, right? They're not going to get it right every time, but the smarter and, you know, use machine learning in this, right? All of a sudden you have computers looking for the similarities between uh, purchasers instead of a, an analyst. And they're looking at a whole bunch of different things. So it's, it's only going to get smarter. You can't hide from it. Unless you're getting burner phones, I guess, and using those all the time. <laughs> well, and you even said, uh, and this is this is cool technology that Dialog Tech and other companies can use, where you can automatically, let's say I place a phone call to American Airlines. Mm -hmm. It will automatically recognize, meaning American Airlines, will recognize the phone number and treat the phone number differently based on the fact that it recognizes it. In the case of American Airlines, they would know ah, we recognize this is Alex Studd, who is a gold member. We're going to route him differently than Ron Studd, who's a nobody on American Airlines, right? So it's using that not only for marketing purposes, but also for really cool routing purposes as well. Yeah. And just and that's really when we start to take the, the operational side into account, right? It's like, how do we, do we treat all calls equal or do we treat some calls differently? Um, another very similar use case is if you've got, you know, if, you, if you're on someone's website and you're looking to buy something and you put a whole bunch of items in your shopping cart, you've got over a thousand dollars of items in your shopping cart and you pick up the phone, 
can we recognize that as that call is getting made and treat you differently than we're treating somebody with zero dollars in the shopping cart? Right. Exactly. These are things that can happen and that do happen. It doesn't mean go around and start putting things in your shopping cart before you call a company because not a lot of companies are doing that, but the smart ones are, are starting to. And so all of a sudden you want to shorten the length of time you're in the queue on hold. Just start putting tens of thousands of dollars worth of electronics in your <laughs> in your cart, Ron. That's how you're doing it. All right. Smart. I love it. I appreciate you kind of giving us a sneak peek into that because I think that's really interesting technology that we're all interacting with, but very few of us understand how it works. So thank you, Andrew. We're going to go to break. And when we come back, I want to talk about sunny San Diego. I want to be talking about Malort. I want to talk about Chicago. And I want to talk about beer because I know you're a big beer guy. We'll be right back and we'll talk about those things. Hey, everyone. It's Ron. Wanted to take a quick moment to ask you as our listeners to do a quick favor for us. If you get a chance to, we're really trying to promote our YouTube channel. So if you'd be so kind as to actually go to look up Between Two Studs on YouTube and uh, click like or subscribe to any of our videos, we'd greatly appreciate it. And if you really don't want to do anything with YouTube, that's cool too. Send us a note. You can reach us at between at two studs.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you. And we are back. We're hanging out with Andrew Weatherall. Switching topics a little bit. We're going to get into Chicago briefly. Andrew, you had mentioned earlier on the show, you've been living in Chicago since 2007. What's your take on the food scene in Chicago? Is it really one of the best food cities in the world or is it overrated? It is, in fact, one of the best food cities in the world. So before I had kids, I, I hate the term foodie, but I consider myself to be knowledgeable in, or I did consider myself to be knowledgeable in the restaurants, the, the, the industry, who the chefs were, where they were going, where they were moving to. The food and access to the good food is much more um, approachable. It's much more accessible than places like New York, where there's just so much hype around places you can't get in. The quality in Chicago is incredible, um, especially like in the warmer months when the local produce is available. All that Midwest produce comes flowing into the city. It's just unlike anywhere else that I've I've lived. Haven't lived that many places, but. It really is fantastic when we're comparing it to a lot of the other food studies in the nation. So yes, I, I do think it is one of the best in the world. So let's say a listener is planning a trip to Chicago for food this summer. Give us one cheap place and one expensive place that you'd recommend. That's really hard. And I'll tell you why. When we're talking about cheap, people have different opinions on what cheap is, but more importantly, people have different opinions on what's good, right? So I, I, I hate when someone's like, well, tell me just tell me this one place to go. And it's like, oh, that's like asking a bartender, you know, what should I drink? And it's like, well, what what do you like to drink, right? So, so it, it really depends on what you like. And then if I understand that, I can help direct you to uh, places that are good. That said, when you hear cheap, you think extremely affordable. So you think like Chicago dog, Italian beef, right? And those are great, but that's not something that I would recommend to somebody. They're worth getting. Skip the deep dish. It's crap. We've talked. You guys have talked about this plenty of times. It's no, it, there's no reason to go out of your way to get deep dish pizza in Chicago. But 
What I would recommend if you're looking for something that is less expensive, something like $15 for a lunch or something, right? Um, I, I don't think that's cheap, but that's cheap in the restaurant world, good restaurants at least, is, is to, to really look at good chefs and see what they're doing that's not fine dining. Like big kids. So, like, so big kids is, is definitely one of the examples that I have where it's like, you've got some phenomenal chefs. It's a chef that left one of the, I think one of what was one of the best restaurants in Chicago, Blackbird, who I'll, I'll get into in a minute, but the owner of Blackbird, the, the, yeah, the, the restaurant tour there, um, head chef was Paul Cahan, um, really a, a Chicago staple in the restaurant scene. But there was one of his, I think, executive chefs that left or sous chef. I don't, I'm not sure exactly, but he opened up a sandwich shop, right? Other examples, Rick Bayless, who's arguably the, the most famous Mexican uh, or Mexican food chef. He's not Mexican. He's Mexican food chef. Uh, he has Shoko, which is his soup and sandwich shop downtown. Paul Cahan, who I did mention, he, he's got uh, like Big Star, which is his taco restaurant where you can go get three dollar four dollar tacos but it's like pork belly tacos with hand pickled Mm. things on top of like it's just it's so good and it's so approachable because you're in a bar with good margaritas flowing and it's 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 not what i would call cheap but it's definitely inexpensive enough to not make you think twice about going there right and that's what i love about chicago is that it's everything is just not everything but you can find things that are so approachable and so affordable Without looking too hard. Yeah. Well, and Big Kids, I mentioned earlier, I went with you, in fact. Uh, well, I should say you met up with us. Yes. But, but here you are, and I, I think I mentioned this on the episode of Ruben, because Ruben was with me as well. We're talking about world-class dining, and now this guy is making a bologna sandwich. And guess yeah. what? The, the bologna sandwich is out of this world. Oh, yeah. It's good bologna. He's not getting, you know, <laughs> the store-bought stuff. He's making or getting, he's sourcing some really quality bologna and then making a fried bologna sandwich. So it's that kind of stuff. When when I think of cheap, those are those are where I would recommend. Otherwise, like really, there's some really good food halls um, in Chicago where you can go and you can get uh, a variety of things with, without breaking the bank. Let's go, now, on the, let's go on the other side of the extreme. I'm, I'm me and my wife, just imaginary scenario. We're not from Chicago. We're coming into Chicago and we're willing to spend a couple hundred dollars each. Right. And, and now I'm not going to go beyond that. Right. Like, cause, cause in Chicago they do have a linea, right? Oh, but you're, you're dropping across to a thousand dollars for a couple to go have dinner there and have a drink while you're eating dinner. Right. I, I'm not going to talk about that, even though it is spectacular there's an incredible story around the chef Grant Ackett's that um, you know runs that. Where uh, are you guys familiar with that story? He he had cancer of the tongue. He got treatment for that because he wouldn't cut his tongue out, and essentially lost the ability to taste while he was developing a three star or a Michelin star restaurant. Right, like and got to three Michelin stars, all while not being able to taste for a period of that time. Like incredible story incredible restaurant. Well, but... and, and ranked every year as one of the best restaurants in the world. Yeah. Yes. But uh, that's not really what I would recommend to somebody on the high end stuff, right? So when it comes to expensive, but not a paycheck expensive, um, again, really look at the Chicago chefs um, and what they are doing to, to decide where to go. So uh, I had mentioned already Paul Cahan, who is 
arguably my favorite chef in Chicago. I'm not arguably, it is my favorite chef in Chicago. I would say uh, his restaurant, Avec, which is like a Mediterranean-themed restaurant, phenomenal. So much fun to go to for, for small plates. Um, or Publican, um, which is his pork-focused uh, restaurant in the West Loop. Um, otherwise, like Stephanie Izzard's. Got I was going to say, goat. Girl on the Goat, yes. Yeah, like it, that's, you know, always, you're, you're never going to go wrong going to Girl on the Goat. She's also opened Cabra, which is a Peruvian restaurant. I haven't had a chance to try it, but I've heard great things. Um, I mentioned Grat Ackett's. He's got a restaurant, Royster, which has one Michelin star, but I've walked up on like a, a midweek and actually just, there was a table available. So I went and sat down at the bar and had dinner there extremely good. Sarah Grunberg with Monteverde. I mean, the list goes on, right? And that's if if you're just visiting Chicago. If if you actually live here, uh, you're spending more than just a couple days. I say, look to the neighborhood. There's so many good places in neighborhoods themselves that are worth checking out, right? And I know we're going to talk about Logan Square, but in Logan Square alone, you've got Giant, you've got Longman and Eagle. Right next to my house is a, a restaurant called Daisy's um, where they, you know, the owner has a brother who has an organic farm so it's like italian food but with an or with a midwest twist up by you alex are you in edgewater is that where you are i'm in edgewater so yeah edgewater you've got like big jones Mm -hmm. if you've been there you've got hop leaf like these are just great great restaurants that are worth checking out but if you're just visiting chicago i would never recommend so there's and and this is why i think chicago is such a good food city it's just well, i it's love it so much andrew i asked you for one of each and you gave me about 10 of each i love it yeah <laughs> we had ed cisse on and he was talking to us about how chicago is really a city of neighborhoods and i know that you live in logan square within the city limits is there any neighborhood that you would want to live in besides logan square i'm going to turn that question around on myself and say are there any neighborhoods that i wouldn't want to live in right so all the neighborhoods are so uh, not so different but a a lot of them are, are are unique in their own way and you love them because of that uniqueness i would say i'm not interested in living in the loop uh or the immediate north and south neighborhoods of that being like river north i did live in river north when i first moved to chicago don't need to do that again. Not a big interest in Old Town. Uh, South Loop doesn't and, and for really those, and for excite those listening, me. For those listening and not familiar with Chicago, like the, the Magnificent Mile is in River North, right? Yeah. So it's very, a lot of hotels, restaurants, very, a lot of high-end steakhouses are there. But, you know, I've never lived there, but I wouldn't feel it, it is much of a neighborhood, even though technically it is. Right. It just doesn't have the character. It definitely feels Chicago, but it doesn't have the character of an individual neighborhood. You don't feel as at home when you're in these places. Everywhere else, like if you told me I had to go as long as it was, as, as it was on a, a train line, like I'd be like, all right, yeah, let's give it a go. Let's let's see what that is. We've talked about Malort many times on this show, Andrew, and we had a shot in your honor right at the beginning of the show. What's your official, official take? I love it. I absolutely awesome. love it. Um, Malort has a, you know, has been a, a big part of me and my friends' relationships. Um, I've got one friend who on his 30th birthday, we all got him different bottles and made sure we got 30 bottles of Malort for his 30th birthday. And ever since then, there's been a Malort bottle at almost every party that we've had. 
I think we've finally run the course on those 30 bottles, but it's, it's definitely not something that I drink alone. It's a social drink, mm-hmm. um, but it's not one that I shy away from or that my friends tend to shy away from either. So I absolutely love Malort. Huge fan. Well, you know, it's funny is just this past weekend, uh, I was in Key Largo for a wedding and I've introduced it to a couple people who have visited me and I brought, I checked the bag and I brought two bottles of Malort down and I didn't take any home with me. I mean, it was all, it was all drank. Not everyone loved it, but everyone tried it. I will say that if you're having a, a big night, um, you know, a big drinking night, don't end the night with shots of Malort. I've done that once and it tastes the same coming back out and it's really a, 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 a terrible experience. It's not something I recommend. So if you can stay away from Malort later in the night, I, I, I encourage you to do so. Words of wisdom right there. Yeah. Well, I think that plays into the old adage, beer than liquor, never sicker, liquor than beer, all in the clear, right? Don't end <laughs> on Malort is, the, is really. Either uh, way. Yeah. Yeah. We can call the episode Don't End on the Lord. <laughs> I think it's a great episode. That, that's a really title. good name. <laughs> so let's get out of Chicago for a little bit, Andrew. I know that one of your favorite places on earth is the Philippines. And if memory serves correct, your wife is Filipino. So to someone who's never been, tell us about that beautiful country. And what are some foods that Ron and I must try when we go? Yes. So uh, I don't know if I would call it one of my favorite places, but it's definitely the most picturesque when it comes to beaches. I've never been to a place more beautiful just to sit there and look out. Never even considered going to the Philippines until I did meet my wife. But uh, there's a place, a part of it, you know, like like a state, if you will, in the Philippines called Palawan. And particularly within Palawan, I've been to a town of El Nido, and it's just jaw-droppingly beautiful. A lot like some of the places that I've seen in Thailand where there's just gigantic limestone cliffs coming straight out of like these blue waters, but without uh, all that tourism traffic that you would see in the Thailand photos with all these speedboats lined up and everything. I'm not saying that there's not tourism there. It's just didn't have the same population density that you saw in Thailand. So phenomenal, phenomenal place. I highly recommend people go visit. If you do go visit, completely avoid Manila at all costs. Don't even fly through it. It's the worst airport I've ever seen. You literally have to give yourself like seven hours to to change terminals there. So uh, fly through um, the other national airport, which is Cebu. But when you are there, Alex, the food is great. And Filipino food in general is becoming more accessible in the US uh, because it's kind of become a food trend over the past year. So I'm not sure if you've had it, but seafood, obviously in the Philippines, it's just a bunch of islands. So seafood is very, very prevalent and they do it very well, especially like whole fish cooked in a variety of ways. They're really known, especially in Cebu, for lechon, which is a whole pig. Uh, And then just experiment with all the other food that you can find. So what stuck out to me from my travels there has really been vinegar. It's uh, a condiment to them that, you know, and they've got tons of different kinds of vinegars made from different fruits, different things they have. And then they'll infuse it with peppers or other things. And it just, 
it adds that sour, it adds that like, like, like a depth to the food that is uh, not common in mm-hmm. at least Western food, but is just so damn good. It's really kind of interesting that you mentioned the Philippines, Andrew. One of the weird things about my travels and experience has been that I actually have uh, done, we've talked about my voice acting on the show. In the Philippines, Cartoon Network actually broadcast a whole series that had my voice on it. (laughs) My voice has been heard throughout the Philippines. And I know one of the weirder things about those folks in the Philippines that threw them off is the dubbing that we did did not match up with like the American dub that everywhere else in the world heard. So one of the weird things that would happen is I would see on like some of the message boards is everyone would be like, well, wait, why are we, why is the voice actor of this person sound like this when last season they didn't and everyone else in the world's like, what are you talking about? (laughs) So that was a really interesting thing. And so it's funny that I've never been there, but Potentially millions of people in the Philippines have heard my voice. Well, now you have to travel there and then say the same line, like walk up to someone and just say the line and just look at them like you're waiting for them to realize who you are. And then you just say, do you want my autograph? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I did actually get interviewed by a guy who's like, uh, he does like a lot of media stuff for the Philippines. And that's the only interview I've ever done in my life. But it was really cool. I was in the uh, Jacob Javits (laughs) Center in New York City. Uh, Shout out to Luis Pedron if you're listening. I understand that you're from San Diego, and we all know that San Diego knows how to do good beer. When it comes to good beer, I also understand that Alex was was introduced by you to some immaculate sour beer. I want to hear a little bit about that story. I am from San Diego. I do love beer, but I wouldn't call myself just a beer lover. I would call myself an alcohol lover. (laughs) I mean, I'm a huge fan of spirits. I'm a huge fan of mixed drinks. Sure. But I do, but I, but I do love beer. When it comes to beer, I've gone through a number of different phases. Mm-hmm. Um, my love of my love of good beer started probably in 2006 when I started frequenting a bar in Los Angeles when I was mm-hmm. living there, called Father's Office. Side note on Father's Office: actually, the first restaurant in the U.S. that had a fancy burger. Mm-hmm. Like they they started the fancy burger trend. And oh, so when I want to spend fifty dollars on like gold leaf burgers, that's, uh-huh. that's- Okay. From them. Yeah, they had okay. like they, theirs was I think like nine or ten dollars at the time, um, and they didn't allow modifications. Like if you didn't want bacon jam on your burger because you were Jewish and didn't eat bacon, they would just tell you to get something else. It was wow. it was fanta- it was fantastic, and it's it's still there. It's still what I would say is the best burger in the country, in my opinion. Like it's worth checking out. So um, anyway, that bar was a beer and wine bar. Mm-hmm. And um, in California, different restaurants can get different liquor licenses. Um, so they didn't have a license to sell liquor. So it was just beer and wine. The most generic beer they had on tap was Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, which back then was common. You could mm-hmm. get it in bottles at the store, but it wasn't like, you know, uh, it wasn't seen as cheap, whatever beer. It was mm-hmm. still good beer. Mm-hmm. Um so I would sit at the bar with my friend and we would just ask the bartender to choose the beers for us. And we, we'd kind of start with, you know, something that we would pick and then we would say, okay, this is what I've had. What would you progress to as your next beer? Like what would be a step up from that? And that's where I was introduced to like racer five other great IPAs. They introduced me to Trappist beers 
And I really got a lot of exposure into the different varieties of beer in a really short period of time. And that kind of really intrigued me. And that's why I do love beer so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, I got into Belgian beers for a bit, got into IPAs for a bit. Um, speaking of San Diego beers, like, you know, Sculpin, mm-hmm. or I guess not Sculpin, Ballast Point. Um, I remember going to Ballast Point with my dad when it was literally a homebrew shop that had like some beers that they were brewing in the back of the shop. Um, wow. Love, love Ballast Point, um, but never really got heavy into the heavy, heavy IPAs. Moved to Chicago, got into barrel aged beers. Mm-hmm. Um, first had Bourbon County Stout from Goose Island. That um, is one of my all time favorites. Who's introduced to our mutual friend Marson. And I mean, Bourbon County Stout's phenomenal. I think today's versions are a little bit lighter, a little more easy drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to taste some of the more, what I would say I tasted when I first came, uh, first got introduced to it, um, there's a, a beer called Death's Tar from Revolution. So not Death Star, but Death's Tar. Star. Yeah, um, which is uh, just a phenomenal bourbon barrel aged beer. And then from there, I started to get into sours. And when it comes to sours, I kind of lean towards the natural yeast sours as opposed mm-hmm. to a fruit sour. Um, I really like, uh, I guess when I first started drinking these, like Monk's Cafe Flemish Sour Ale or St. Bernardus Abbott 20 Barrel, like mm-hmm. some of my favorites back then. Alex, from what I understand, you didn't really like sours well, until... I remember, yeah, I remember you and I chatting. Right. And, and, you know, during our 75% just chatting meetings. Yeah. 25% work meetings. And a little, little brewery called New Glarus came Let me up. tell you something. Let me tell you. And I said, I've never had a good sour. I've never enjoyed sour beers. And you introduced me to this thing. And it was... Yeah. It was, New, so so I, I, New Glarus is um, a brewery up in Wisconsin. Um, they only sell beer in Wisconsin because they think they make enough money selling beer in Wisconsin to keep them happy, and they will not start selling outside of that. So you have um, to you, – I mean, if you're Chicagoan, you have to make the hour drive up there with no mm-hmm. traffic yeah. to load up and come back. And mm-hmm. they've got a few different fruit beers uh, that are all sours, and they are just phenomenal. So, um, Alex, that was when you first had it and you were like, it's, it's almost like, uh, a, a lambic, but not right. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's definitely not right. like a lamb, like a frambois or something like that. Like it's, it's not like that, but it does kind of hint in that direction. And it's just so good. The craft beer movement of the last 10 to 15 years has been quite impressive, but I, I do think, unfortunately it has heavily catered and focused on IPAs, which maybe that's a horrible thing to say to a San Diegan. But I do think there's so many other beers that, and styles of beer that a lot of Americans have never even tried. And so when it comes to like the sour beer from Nuclearis, or even I know the same brewer makes this awesome farmhouse ale called Spotted Cow, like it's, it, you're being introduced to these new flavors that you've never otherwise experienced. Yeah, and I mean, Spotted Cow is actually my favorite go-to beer um, if I have it around because it's in Wisconsin only. I don't get it that often because I don't drive that direction. But it's whenever I have friends that are going or whenever I'm going, we always reach out to each other like, hey, does anybody want anything? Because I'm crossing the border, right? Like, And 
it's, I actually went up there um, to the brewery itself and picked up probably seven or eight cases for my wedding because we wanted to have this beer at my wedding. And it's just such an easy drinking beer, but it's also just, ah, it's hard to explain. It's just good. It's just yeah. a damn well, good beer. And, and as a, as a, someone who had just moved to Chicago at the time, I'd never experienced it before, never tasted it. And Andrew said, I'm going to get you some. And I, I completely forgot about it. And then one day I showed up at my, at my desk and there was a can, a can wow. of, of spotted cow. It was delightful. Going into a little bit about where the beer culture is gone, because I'm completely with you, Alex, I got IPA out where it just, it wasn't even like creative ways of doing IPAs. I think it just went so much for the hops. Well, it was just trying to top each other. It's like, oh, well, that you you, you haven't experienced hops till we had this. This is a triple, right? You know, super, and it's gonna, we're gonna slap you in the face with hops, right? Super, super bitter. And then the problem with all of those IPAs is you can't enjoy them. Like you can't take multiple IPAs in a single sitting without like having to drink like a gallon of water because I think it kind of kills your palate in a way, right? It does. So it does. It, and I love that with like um, sours where I've seen a lot of people, even in Atlanta, people are looking for sours. They're looking for different styles of beer. Yeah. And to round out my beer story, um, a few years ago, I took a trip with my brothers and my dad to Germany. Hmm. Uh, my dad lived in Germany uh, when he was in high school. Uh, no, I'm sorry, junior high, because his dad was in the military. So they were over, they were stationed there. And he wanted to take us and show us where he lived and show us around some of his memories from his childhood. And the beers there, just the, they're so clean. They're so drinkable. Like the Pilsners, the Hellas, it, it really hit because I was also getting craft beard out, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Right. Because everyone was trying to go more powerful, just bigger. Everyone's trying to top one another. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, ever since that trip, I've really, taken a step back and just looked for the the lighter beers not the the macro beers but just lighter beers when it comes to what i want to be drinking when i'm out mm -hmm. yeah well you know and it's it's interesting you bring that up andrew because and and ron can confirm what i'm about to say which is you know i got introduced to at a, at a pretty young age some really good beers right i was drinking dogfish heads and, and a lot of like you know brooklyn brewery uh, you know a lot of the, the best beer that the east coast has to offer at a relatively young age and so when i got to my early 20s i actually was kind of uh, a little pretentious right in terms of kind of really poo-pooing on on some some regular lagers and ales and as i've gotten older i've come to appreciate there's a time and a place for a budweiser there's mm -hmm. a time and a place for an old style. I don't know if you agree with that, Andrew, but I do, right? And and not all the time, but I can appreciate it for what it is. And I think that's something that came along as I got older, that it's not always about how much flavor can I push into this 12-ounce bottle. Um, there is a sentiment of sometimes less is more. Yes. And that time for old style is... Whenever you're at a bar in Chicago, Alex, and it's like two dollars, it's fantastic. <laughs> right. Well, I was I was really stoked. I found a I found a place near us that actually sells um, old style, but I was disappointed. They had it 
initially the sign says it's on draft and it's only on can. So it's a little disappointed. And they did not have Malort either. You know what's funny, Ron, is I've lived in Chicago for almost two years, one of which was COVID. But I'm not sure I've ever had old style in draft because it's it's usually a beer that you get in like a nasty dive bar mm-hmm. and you get a can and you get a shot of Malort and that's yeah. the handshake or at, or at a Cubs game oh, or it's, at a Cubs it's, game. it's it's the better option at the Cubs game it's been a pleasure having you on thank you so much for kind of walking us through uh, some of the great places to go and have some great food in Chicago for talking us through some great beer and also giving us a little bit of insight into what a product manager does. It's been a pleasure having you on. And I have to say, before we go, I know I've already thanked you for this, but thank you also for helping to improve our Ember round. We're going to have to have you back in season two. I look forward to it. Maybe I'll be taking that from Costa Rica. Who knows? Ooh, that would be really cool. You will have a lot more to share with us by that. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> or a lot less. What have you been doing? I've been hanging out at the beach. and there's nothing wrong with that (laughs) so with that we'll wrap this episode episode 24 thank you so much for coming on thank you gentlemen